Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Jacob T. Levy. He's the Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory at McGill University and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Jacob. Thanks for having me back, guys. Now, important note here for our listeners that this will be there will be spoilers in this episode. If you have not seen Avengers Endgame or other Marvel movies, there all will of be the spo- Marvel movies, all of the we Marvel may movies, be yes, we may be spoiling, uh, and that is the topic today: the politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So, I think we should start at the beginning with Iron Man. Is Tony Stark a warmonger? Tony Stark starts as a weapons manufacturer, uh, and he's portrayed as being kind of indifferent to uh, what it takes to drum up business. But he turns awfully quickly in the first Iron Man. Admittedly, he turns under really dire circumstances. But the idea that he would turn not only his own life around, but his business around so dramatically and to come back to the United States and try to get out of the arms business altogether for something that for a firm that was making what seems to be most of its money at the time as an arms manufacturer. Uh, that, that to me looks like something that wasn't very deeply rooted in his character as a war seeker. Uh, my, 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 my sense is that he's being portrayed at the beginning of the series as just, just indifferent, just, Interested in the high life, interested in showing off his smarts, not not the kind of stereotypical villain warmonger who actively craves war because it makes a profit. But so he shifts. He's not selling weapons, but he certainly continues to make them for himself and employ them in spectacular enough fashion that it launched a 22 movie franchise. (laughs) Uh, But – so, so libertarians, for, like when we're talking about gun rights, right? That the question that gets asked is, well, do you think that a citizen should be able to own a bazooka, right, or or a nuke? Um, is it okay for Tony Stark to own the Iron Man <laughs> suit and use it to blow up all sorts of people and, and occasionally things? fight foreign wars <laughs> or at least foreign invasions? <laughs> it's part of the required suspension of disbelief for superhero universes. Um, that there there be some freedom of action for private citizens uh, who are physically not even close to the equal of everybody else, partly because on the conceit of those universes, uh, there are always going to be bad guys who are not remotely the physical equal of everybody else. If you want to tell the other kind of story, want to tell the story that says what would it really socially and politically be like for there to be superhumans then you end up with a very different genre of fiction Uh, at best you end up with watchmen in which the government ends up monopolizing and closing down uh, superpowered entities but it matters in watchmen that there aren't very many of them and that there's one whose power dwarfs everyone else's dr manhattan such that once the U.S. government has Dr. Manhattan on side, there's really no question about whether other super people are going to be in a position to challenge the government or not. Uh, I think attempts to make superhero universes, regular superhero universes like Marvel or DC, uh, seriously confront the question of 
what what politics looks like, what society looks like under those conditions of radical human physical inequality uh, tend not to go very well. The, the comic book Civil War that was the very loose inspiration for the movie Civil War uh, was was just a disaster. It was morally and politically incoherent. It had no ability to actually grapple with any of the things that it was looking at. The, the movie's somewhat better, but that this is one of the questions. The analogy to gun control is one of the questions that I think we can't get any real traction on, on because you just need to let that question go in order to let a superhero universe be interesting. Well, how about how about this question? If in your world of political philosophy, uh, political theory, how how do you think different schools of political theory say like Rawlsians? So if you did have this natural inequality, we talk about this a lot in political theory. You have a really, really, really stark natural inequality between a Tony Stark. Yes, <laughs> like what? Well, it's for him. Boy, <laughs> there was a cringe. I'm I hanging could, up. I could hear. I could hear Jacob cringe <laughs> for that. But uh, so you have this. You have this difference, and you have different. Th- you have theories about inequality, and you can even bring in Plato, right? The philosopher king kind of idea of who who might have the right to rule people by virtue of their skills and talents. And the interesting thing about, about Tony Stark is that you can make him into a kind of a Randian superhero because he built his powers and Batman too, I guess, uh, as opposed to being naturally born with them. But if we were to practice political theory in the in this universe, I imagine there'd be some people saying we needed to uh, – they had to serve the comic, they had to work for the government, their inequalities had to be re- redistributed to help the least representative people. And maybe libertarians would say, no, they should be freelance vigilantes. I'm not, I'm not sure where, where it would fall on that. So the, the political theories that have made a great deal out of human inequality have emphasized mental abilities. And the political theories that have emphasized the physical fact of humanity like Hobbes, have, just to that extent, really emphasized human equality. We are all mortal. We can all, this is Hobbes' account of human equality, uh, we are all vulnerable to each other. Any one of us can be, at at worst, killed in our sleep by any other of us. Uh, I think that when you take that assumption away, when you say there's really radical human inequality in our physical selves, some of us are apparently not mortal. Some people you can't kill Bruce Banner in his sleep because as soon as the knife punctures his neck, he's going to transform into the Hulk. Um, then, then the ability to think politically at all gets very messy. Aristotle said, in, it, politics is the domain of equality, which is to say, we humans in here are the citizens of a polis. Outside the polis, there are only creatures of radical inequality. There are only beasts or gods. Well, what happens if you actually have gods walking around? The answer is the social organization you have around them isn't really much like politics anymore. That's very different from saying Thor, for example, uh, is, is a natural ruler, ought to be philosopher king. That's not what even the theorists of radical inequality like Plato advocated. Once you have a god around, you're you're just in a different business. It's this is it's interesting as you're saying this because it's it speaks to I think um, 
so I, I have enjoyed the Marvel movies, but I'm not like super into them and I'm not super into superheroes in general. So you're not like me and Jacob. <clears throat> so I'm not like the two of you. Um, but but what you're saying kind of I think gets at – helps you to realize like why it is that I might not have gotten super into them, which is the thing that attracts me to imagined universes. So like being really into Star Wars is world building. Like I love just immersing myself in a intricate and interesting alternate world. But what you're saying and I, I think like – I think I agree with what you're saying is that basically – the the superheroes like there isn't world building in this world because the world building would be the okay we've got here's how we deviate from it we have these superhuman beings that aren't mortal um now what does the world look like but as you're saying when you try to do that it doesn't work so you kind of have to just like wave your hands and say we're not going to do world building in order to make these things functionally work as the kinds of stories we want to tell. Like everything is the same except for superpowers. Right. Political entities and all this stuff is the same. And that that I guess I could see Aaron's point for for his aesthetics. That doesn't make as much sense. Right. Uh, now I think there's a kind of world building, just like there's there's a kind of world building in Star Wars, even though there's not any really serious political or economic analysis. Um the Star Wars doesn't try to be what Star Trek sometimes tries to be, which is to say, what if we change these facts about human social organization and then to tease out the speculative social science about what things look like under those conditions? And a lot of print science fiction, a lot of science fiction novels do really do that kind of work. Um, but in, say, Star Wars, there's a lot of universe building about just showing how interesting and complicated other things are. And they ask the audience not to pay particularly close attention to how politics works. That's not to say there aren't 10,000 word Wikipedia entries uh, about the operations of the Imperial Senate, but they don't really hang together. Uh, so yeah, superhero universes, they're not about that part of speculative fiction. They do try to heighten some kinds of moral dilemmas. They try to heighten certain kinds of psychological questions, but they don't really try to heighten social inquiry. If they did, then the most important actors in a world like that would be not Tony Stark as Iron Man, but Tony Stark as inventor or Reed Richards as inventor, just utterly upending the technological status quo every six months uh, at the beginning of Avengers. Tony is at the, verge of turning the arc reactor that he created with scraps in the cave into a viable source of what's described as clean energy. We don't know how clean, but apparently very much cleaner than any status quo energy. They never return to that. Uh, uh, across another, what, 15 movies after Avengers, we never see the social transformation that should have been underway if Stark had invented really radically clean, low-fuel energy. Because that, that, that would swamp, that, that would be much bigger and more important than most of the superhero stuff. But, but then why, th this clean energy thing is interesting because, so yeah, they don't ever really run with it, but, but new sources of clean energy are like a MacGuffin in so much superhero <laughs> stuff. Like whether it's you know the bad guy ha is going to get one and do something bad with it, or we've created one and they're trying to steal it. I mean, that was it. Um, was it the first of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies was about yeah, was clean it, energy? Like it's train. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. shows up like 
so there's this weird obsession with clean energy throughout superhero stuff. Or am I imagining that? I, I, I think it's probably pretty recent and kind of unique to the movies. It's one of the only ways that we know how to quickly depict to a current mass audience morally good, what looks like morally good technological improvement. That's a good point. Um, yeah, I think that the it, the it, your point is interesting that they would have to have like a movie about how the whole world changed and Marvel's uh, I guess brand has always been that we take these people and we make them real people and they live in the real world. Like Spider Man lives in New York City, not not Gotham, and so. They, but if you do design a new energy source, you're going to have to deal with the ramifications of that. Although interestingly, in the Marvel universe, they do occasionally have more world building in this sense. My my favorite one is Damage Control. So this is just yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> the organization that cleans up after after superhero fights, which I always thought that would be an interesting question, which is it, should people be compensated for uh, the damage that is done to them by superhero fights? Or and the, the DC-based TV show Powerless, uh, starring Alan Tudyk, um, was originally, I think, pitched as being an insurance company set in the superhero universe. It was constantly struggling with the question of, what kinds of insurance policies and how to compensate. And they it tested badly and they went back to drawing board. <laughs> I can't it's imagine act, why. Actuarial <laughs> tables. <laughs> but I, I would have watched the heck out of that show. <laughs> this reminds me though of the going back to like, you know, can you own a private like Iron Man suit? Uh, is it, it remind, I think John Hasness is the one who told me when I asked him, could people own a nuke? He said, if you could carry the liability insurance for owning a nuke, then you should be able to own a nuke. And maybe that would be the requirement for certain destructive powers is that they have to be able to carry liability insurance. And then that would compensate the people whose houses get destroyed in a, a battle. Given that we don't, we haven't yet fully sorted out what we think liability insurance looks like for firearm ownership. Good point. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that we can take for granted. Yes, we've got that bit of social technology so perfected that we can we can extend it out. And I like the thought, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here's a, here's an important question for Captain America standpoint: uh, Should you be able to punch Nazis, or at least Hitler, in the cover of the very first Captain America com uh, comic? <laughs> I think I think so. I think so. I'm, I'm going to go with yes on that one. I'm not sure. I'm not sure your position, Jacob. So the Captain America comic came out before the U.S. was in World War II, but World War II had broken out. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, a lot of the traditional imagery about Captain America is World War II based. And I think there's a problem with taking the analogy of violence against a, an opposed wartime leader to where people take it in the punch a Nazi debate post 2015 or 2016, which is should random passersby take a swing at Richard Spencer every time they see him? I think and, they think it's analog analogous <laughs> the people who support and, him. And, and I think they're wrong. I think that you, you, you can punch Hitler and that does not mean that you can punch Richard Spencer. So to go back to your earlier point about kind of how these, these movies and superheroes in general um, – don't really ask these kinds of political questions or can't really talk about politics in the, the Aristotelian sense of um, stuff happening between equal beings. Does that mean then that basically the whole conversation we've set out to have today 
we shouldn't be having that these that that we can talk about the moral issues in these in these things that the character issues in these movies uh but but to even just talk about like what what is the politics of the marvel cinematic universe is is either a non-starter or should be a non-starter that we're doing something wrong by trying to read politics into it i i think you you can do a lot tongue in cheek and you can look for you can look for the politics of particular questions, but you have to be willing to enter into the universe and to let the universe make sense. So uh, can you have a conversation, for example, about the politics and political economy of Wakanda and Wakandan isolation? Yes, I think you absolutely can. Um, yeah, how do they get that rich if they don't trade? And... The, the imagined answer is that what they are isn't rich so much as they are uh, technologically hyper-advanced. And they've gotten technologically hyper-advanced without, to, I think, our eyes, a large enough population to sustain the kind of advanced division of labor that even with the magical technical, technological infusion coming from really, really fancy metal in the ground um, – would have allowed for it, uh, but 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 if you get that technologically rich and you have centuries of practice at secrecy, then could you make a practice of constantly selling off technology that's just slightly ahead of the status quo secretly? Yeah, you could do that, and you could build up your cash reserves that way. Still, probably not possible though <laughs> to get that level of technological advancement in. But but then I think there are there are two other ways that we could frame a conversation about the politics of say this series of movies, but it would apply to you know any other work of art as well. Um, so we might we might say like yeah to talk about kind of the politics in the movies, you have to do hand wavy stuff or pick these isolated examples, but the the movies themselves aren't deeply about politics and shouldn't be seen as that. Um, but they can also – we can see the movies as metaphorically about politics. And so the movies yes. are making a political statement even if that statement doesn't exist in the like in the fictionalized world that the movie is setting out, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, absolutely. And then, and then the other way is to look at the politics of the movies in the sense of the politics of the conversations around and about – the movies and it seems like the marvel movies have sparked both of those yeah so winter soldier like dark knight um, can can be part of a conversation about the politics of surveillance and about the power of intelligence agencies and that kind of thing and and it's, it's clearly deliberately aiming at that and it's aiming to do so in a way that is kind of recognizably similar to debates that have really been alive in the United States over the last 20 years, whether either of them has anything to say, anything clear and coherent to say, as opposed to just calling on the atmospherics of worry about surveillance. Uh, that's, that's, I think, a little bit less clear, but, it, but it's a perfectly coherent conversation to have. Well, I think that there's a uh, you know, because in Winter Soldier, the surveillance state, basically the NSA, is set up by ultimately Nazis, Hydra, 
And, and, That's right. And there's this idea that uh, Nazis want to surveil you for their own purposes and good guys uh, also want to surveil you for their own purposes. And maybe you should be aware that that the powerful, you know, would have purposes and surveillance usually is something that they'll they'll propose as something that fits their ends, whether they're Nazis or, or quote unquote good guys. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, I think that comes through in Winter Soldier. But is that is that the message or is the message if I'm, I'm going to be more cynical about the the messaging of the film that what looks like that basically the good guys aren't going to hurt you. So the message of this is that, yes, the United States government was surveilling you and that's bad, but it was only because it had been corrupted by Nazis from within. And so it's almost no. like it's a foreign influence. No, I, um, Fury was – Dick Fury was fully on board with every part of the project except for who was going to get targeted at the end. Uh, <clears throat> the The happy ending of the movie such as it is, is the destruction of the intelligence capabilities of shield uh, Natasha Romanoff publishes every secret we have on- online it's almost impossible to imagine what that even means it's like it's like David Brins through the transparent society kind of get it all out there right uh, but 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 no there's no there's no image at the end of the movie that says if only if only the good guys get control of shield back then there's nothing to worry about the solution that's adopted is Blow it all up. Going back to the question of these, the status of these relatively powered people, I, I agree with it. it's an interesting when you have like a god. It might be the case that politics, as we know it, is 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 impossible. But you do have other questions in the Marvel universe. Is I think particularly good at bringing out that there's a there's a there's a scale between people like Tony Stark or say Daredevil and Thor and. On a lower end of a scale, you have Daredevil, and then the real interesting foil is Punisher. Not getting a little bit outside of the MCU itself, but Punisher kind of seems to exist to say, okay, so so Daredevil, for example, or Spider Man, feels that they have the right and, if not duty, to be a vigilante because possibly of these powers. Could that apply to someone who just is special forces trained and and has a bunch of guns? And and has a bunch of revenge that he wants to carry out. What, why why can't that guy do that too? So what's the status of vigilantes? I guess is is the kind of question. Yeah, how should we feel about this kind of vigilanteism? So I, I I haven't watched Punisher. I haven't watched Punisher partly because as a comic book fan to begin with, I always felt like Punisher broke the, broke the universe. Um, That's the point, <laughs> it, it, but you're yeah. saying in a bad way, like, but in 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 in, in a bad way, and, and in a pretty repetitive way. Uh, it's hard to imagine the Marvel universe continuing uh, with none of the super powered superhero types who are firmly against killing having at any point successfully brought Punisher in, and and so in the comics there are long stretches where. Punisher seems to more or less secede from the Marvel universe and be part of a separate self-contained uh, just corner that doesn't interact because it, how, how does Captain America not ever hunt the Punisher down and shut him down in a relatively permanent way? Uh, now, the question of whether 
the line that all the other superheroes draw makes sense. Uh, we, we are in the business of beating people up and breaking their legs and create a massive collateral damage, but we never kill. That I think is, uh, that, that actually I think is also a question that arose partly out of radical inequality. So it's a rule that makes sense for Superman. Superman is so much stronger than everyone else that he can stop anyone from doing anything without using lethal force. But at the beginning of comics, Batman killed people. Actually, at the beginning of comics, Superman killed people too. But as, as he got stronger in the comics, they very rapidly had him adopt a rule against killing people. Uh, and it's realistic to think that Superman can do what he does and not kill anyone. It's really hard to think that Batman can do what he does and not kill anyone. Uh, the movies have just almost never taken seriously this core animating thing from superhero comics, which is that superheroes don't kill people. The superheroes in the movies kill people all the time. In the first Batman movie, um, throwing people off bell towers left and right and using the Batmobile as a kind of car bomb to destroy dozens of uh, bad guys standing around. And it's just never been brought into question. What's been interesting is that the Netflix Marvel shows that run alongside the Punisher have been obsessed with this traditional superhero question, even though the MCU movies don't care. So the question in particular, does will Daredevil kill people? Was this massive recurring theme and the relationship between Daredevil and Punisher, the relationship between Daredevil and Bullseye imitating Daredevil and killing people. Um, this was a, a major recurring thing that actually made Daredevil, the TV show, truer to the usual comic book representation than anything in the movies has been. Is, is there a reason for that? I mean, is this a conscious choice? Like, so I can, I, I can imagine um, that one of the reasons you might not kind of front and center the they're not going to kill people in in these these large scale huge budget movies is that when you're filming, so when you're drawing giant destruction in a handful of panels on a page, you can you can kind of do it in such a way where it looks like it's really just like a couple of guys punching each other and there happens to be some stuff falling down. But when you're but shooting, in order, to, in, in order to make the visual vocabulary of an action sequence work you yeah we we know what an action scene looks like in a movie and we know what explosions look like in movies and everyone who's grown up watching action movies would have their suspension of disbelief broken if you had a traditional war movie set of explosions where the missiles just happen to be launched from tony stark's back but or otherwise missiles blowing things up and then you saw all the bad guys shake it off because they were just stunned and it would look wrong to us. It would be like in the in the A-Team TV show when every time the cars, exactly. the bad guys would flip over, they'd all climb out. Yes, yes. <laughs> or in the Teenage Mutant, Mutant Ninja Turtles, they didn't fight humans. The cartoon, they always were robots. So they didn't have to kill people. Yeah, which is important. But it, but it is the question here. It's kind of from a, a moral philosophy standpoint. 
I mean, you have self. You have rules of self defense. The question of vigilantism is a little different. But then it makes me think about the what is it, the guardian angels? Is that their their name? The guardians of the galaxy? No, no. I'm talking about the oh the, oh oh in inner cities. Uh, the right the groups that that patrol the streets to protect people. And I don't. I mean, I assume their rules are are you know they have strict rules about how to engage and what to engage. And and that those rules that they follow presumably legitimize what they're allowed to do or, or that they even do that. I guess their presence is what sort of matters the most. Uh, but those are that's a form of vigilantism. And occasionally you hear stories about people trying to become vigilantes, uh, which which often doesn't work out too well. As a moral philosophy matter, self-defense or really immediate defense of others um, is kind of the core case of legitimate violence. And when we think about the concept of vigilante, we think instead about somebody who's trying to put themselves in a position where I mean, the, the most optimistic gloss on it would be trying to put themselves in a position where those circumstances trigger and they're entitled to use violence. And as a matter of political philosophy as opposed to moral philosophy, one of the things we really hope for in a social organization is that such circumstances are as rare as possible. Uh, so I think there's good reason to have real doubt about the desirability of the social and political matter of people who are in the business of putting themselves out there trying to trigger the circumstances that legitimize their violence. But this seems like another one of those things where we have to we have to bracket those kinds of conversations just for the for the stories to work. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, we have to assume that they have the power. Yeah. So, so someone, someone a little while ago in the conversation referred to the old Marvel motto that they they had superheroes in the real world, by which they meant primarily uh, they exist in really existing named cities like New York, not in fake cities like Gotham or Metropolis. There, there's another sense in which Marvel emphasized its reality back in the dawn of the Marvel Age in the 60s, and that was that its characters had flaws, and its characters had serious problems. Peter Parker had money problems in a way that no traditional DC character did. Uh, and I think that's, that's the truer part. Either Kurt Busiek or Neil Gaiman, but I think it was Kurt Busiek, once said, uh, no, 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 stories like the Marvel stories or stories like Marvel's, the BCX series, they're not about superheroes in the real world. They're just about real people in a superhero universe. And then BCX Astro City is even more real people, psychologically complicated people, people with problems in a superhero universe. The problem with superheroes in the real world as a fictional trope is that it's just got this relentless drive toward Watchmen. All that everything becomes about is the management of this fact of these extraordinary wielders of violence. And it becomes a story about politics and military capabilities and intelligence capabilities really, really quickly. And it's hard for there to be very many versions of that story. Whereas real people in a superhero universe, that can have as many stories as there are stories about real people. I was struck, so I, I was catching up on some of the movies that I had not seen before our conversation today, and there were a handful of them. Um, and so I watched Black Panther, <clears throat> which was 
is a very good um, and scratched a lot of those itches that about aesthetics that I didn't don't get from the rest of the the production design is fantastic right. and really interesting. Yeah. Uh, and and I was surprised. I mean, so so movies before this, so Winter Soldier or Civil War, had 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 been fairly political, but I was surprised at just how overtly political this movie was and and political in a way that i i enjoyed immensely but i could see you know there was the the kind of angry white comic book fan who descended into gamergate some time ago um it, the politics of Black Panther, not just the fact that it was all like mostly black cast, which irrationally upsets these people, um, but but just the explicit politics of it was like I mean you couldn't have more custom designed it to to tweak them in I think valuable ways, um, but I was I was surprised at the the level of it, um, and it seemed it was much more kind of controversially political than the political the movies that were political before it in the series. Um, but but then that raises – there's this kind of objection that people have to these movies being political at all, that that this is – this should be escapist fair, that it should be about heroes, that it should be that, – that you don't go into this stuff wanting to get a, a scolding about – racism or a stern talking to about surveillance culture. Um, and so I mean, do you have do you have a reaction to that? Like is that can can it go too far? Yeah, I, is it is so, it wrong so I, for them to inject their personal politics? I have a, I have a reaction about the general question and then a reaction about Black Panther. Um, about the general question, the the success of the MCU just plainly shows that it's not the case that all people want is light, fluffy escapism out of the genre. People want more than one thing. And uh, One of the things that's been so interesting about the MCU is how pluralistic it has ended up being in some ways. Um, I know there's a house style, a house style about action scenes, a house style about aesthetics, but the kinds of movies that Black Panther, Winter Soldier, Doctor Strange... Thor Ragnarok are they're, they're really different kinds of stories and there's not just one thing that audiences are looking for when they're going to those some of them are more purely escapism some of them aren't and the ones that are more purely escapism haven't somehow systematically been the most successful or popular of them uh, there are different political messages then that emerge out of those variety of approaches. Uh, Winter Soldier and Black Panther, I don't think, are being told from a common shared political point of view in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole adds up to something really unusual in the history of movies and TV, though not so unusual in the comics terms, uh, as being an interlinked set of commercial cultures, cultural products that still isn't really strongly unified. There hasn't been one director. There hasn't been one writer. Um, and there hasn't entirely been one genre. There's just been a shared setting and some shared rules about how that setting works. So for Black Panther, it's really funny, I think, that 
the Gamergate types got upset about it as a political message. Because the funny thing about Black Panther's politics is, looked at from one point of view, it is very traditional, superheroic, status quo reaffirmation. The old critique of the politics of superheroes is necessarily what counts as winning is restoring the status quo ante. You have a villain, you introduce a villain, the villain challenges things, the hero puts things back the way they were. So what happens in Black Panther? What happens in Black Panther is that the hereditary monarch successfully puts down a black power revolutionary challenge by killing the uh, his kinsman, who is the black power challenger, with the aid of a white CIA officer, uh, <laughs> um, su- such that the world then remains safe for hereditary how monarchy. It's always been. <laughs> yeah. For her, right. Wakanda remains safe for hereditary monarchy, but the rest of the world remains safe from this envisioned people of color uprising that was going to be powered by vibranium weapons. Uh, it's, not, it's, not, it's not as subversive when you put it that way. Having, I guess, having Wakanda it, it, take it, over the it, world. It, right. It's just having having black characters at the center. The idea that it's, it was within the power of a black African country to change the world. That's what's so subversive. But the actual political events of the movie are not subversive at all. It, it does bring up too – I mean there's – one of these – so the, the kind of politics of the conversation around these things as opposed to the politics within them is is this notion of representation um, and whether you know people can see themselves in it. So you got it with, with Black Panther, Panther and race and then um, not too long ago with Captain Marvel and Marvel finally having a, a female lead and there were similar kinds of – um, and, and one of the things that's always struck me is kind of nonsensical about, again, this kind of the, the Gamergate comic book community um, who I think are just like relentlessly fascinating in how just like awful they can be um, is is they just – they're like, oh, come on, guys. Like it's – you. You really needed a whole like why can't you just – we all can see ourselves in Captain America. You know Why can't you like – it's silly for you to have – You know someone has to be the same gender as you. They have to have the same skin color as you for you to identify with them. But then at the same time, the moment that there is someone who isn't a white male, they just lose it. And they're like I can't possibly watch a Captain Marvel thing or watch Black Panther because it's a black guy. How am I supposed to get invested in this? Um, and, it, and so it seems like – I mean one of the things is it's, it just feels like this is all part of this like – we're in this period where um, there were always in geek culture, so it's not just comic book culture, but but it, it was in video game culture, and it was in you know all like it even shows up. I for a long time was in the kind of tabletop gaming community, and it it shows up there too. People got upset that the newest version of Dungeons and Dragons had like people of color represented in it, right? Because um, it's supposed to be just in, European in males the in the artwork, yeah. Um, that. That that's that kind of stuff because of now the incredible popularity of like these movies that that stuff could be hidden away in pockets of geekdom that no one was paying attention to, but the fact that these movies you know Endgame as we're sitting here is past one point two billion in like a handful of days you know everybody in the world is watching these things that that part of the community has just been not 
elevated. I don't want to give it that much credit, but exposed, like exposed, exposed in a way, itself. illuminated in in a way that it never had been before. And so you're getting these really bizarre conversations. And it's found ways to um, to leverage its organization. You know, it's it's kind of disparate and decentralized organization, but nonetheless organization. Like, for example, the attacks on audience ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, they they made a habit of pre-release any movie that they decided looked like an identity representation movie, by which they meant movies that had women leads or leads of color. Um, they would just systematically go rate as zero on the audience ratings on Rotten Tomatoes to try to drive down word of mouth at the beginning. And ultimately, Rotten Tomatoes had taken steps to protect itself against this. And it wasn't working. The, the one case that they will point to in triumph and say, look, we successfully killed the Ghostbusters reboot. But the Ghostbusters reboot had many, many problems. Yeah. It, had, it had problems. It, it had some charms, and I didn't hate it. But, but it, it, it had mediocre reviews. It wasn't going to be a smash success. But they completely failed to take down Wonder Woman or Captain Marvel or Black Panther or Aquaman, which, let's note, uh, had a mixed-race actor on, like, the mixed-race or Hawaiian? Hawaiian actor um, for a character who in the comics is a white blonde guy. Uh, the, it's, it's just gotten nowhere. It, all it does is poison a little bit of the online community part of what we know from the alt-right on Twitter and trolls in general is it doesn't take very many people to create a poisonous environment. And that's one of those ways that the internet just works and we haven't quite figured out what to do with it. Uh, but but I, 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 re I really don't think of that sector of fandom as being a major part of anything that's happened with respect to the superhero movies. So now we just uh, wrapped up the the, la the last two Avengers movie and the big story arc. And of course, the, the villain brilliantly portrayed by Josh Brolin is Thanos. And of course, I think of people, I mean, you probably thought this, Jacob, and I think probably Aaron did. You, you, you see what he wants to do. He wants to wipe out half of the, the human race or the, the population of the universe um, in a almost Malthusian sense. And, and it struck me, I was wondering, you know, maybe you actually have firsthand knowledge of this being on, on a campus uh, in the philosophy departments, but the, the, whether or not environmental ethicists, you have your, sort of your standard course in environmental ethics. It seems like the question of whether or not what Thanos is doing is, is, a, is a good thing uh, could be an open question to some of these people, especially because environmentalism does have a history of advocating population control and some, some pretty unsavory things. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time with environmental ethicists. Um, <laughs> I didn't think so, but <laughs> uh, you, you, you may be taking that in a way that I didn't intend. No, no, yeah, yeah. It's not a matter of voice. It's just, uh, it, it doesn't happen to be where my, um, where my conversations are. Uh, Thanos's plan as described in the first movie made no sense. And I, I've never heard anyone who takes environmentalism seriously say, ah, what a, tragically misunderstood hero he really was uh, for one thing if you have the magic wishing glove that gives you all the power then there's no reason to prefer 
killing half of organic life over doubling the resources in the universe. Even if you have just a straight Malthusian view of the relationship between mouths and stuff, your magic wishing glove can just make more stuff. Second thing, population is just going to resume its exponential increase. And if you have this concern for the universe as a whole, pushing your Malthusian doomsday back by two generations, three generations, that doesn't look like a solution. Uh, so I, I was actually pleased in that endgame. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. I was pleased that, pleased that in endgame, Thanos just openly says, yeah, if I have to kill everybody, I'll do that instead. Um, the the apparent environmentalist nobility got stripped away because I think the character makes more sense without that kind of rationalization. In the comics, isn't anything like that rationalization? It's a very different set of motivations. Um, and I thought that what was being offered in Infinity War didn't really make any sense. I, I can't say that I've heard people of whatever view on environmentalism endorsing this idea. The, then the other problem is you induce societal collapse. You, you, you don't save resources by plunging societies into civil war and destroying production. And, but the, the sudden democide, the sudden loss of half your population, it's devastating. War is really bad for the environment. And you don't kill half the population without a sudden societal collapse. There's just no way that what you're doing there is good for the environment. And I, I haven't heard anybody well, buying I, into that story. I, I think if you're a professional, if you're a professor of environmental ethics, I, I think that they probably would understand that. But there have been some very radical environmentalists in, in at different places, not the professors necessarily, but the kind of eco-terrorist people who who – who have advocated and you know maybe bombing stuff like this that the the, the only thing to save the environment is to just is to stop the human race. Uh, I mean, I've definitely heard this before, so maybe you can imagine. I mean, Thanos might be wrong, but he's he's caught up in an ideology, and so he doesn't realize that he's wrong. Yeah, possible. Um, and it, you know, it it could be true. I don't endorse the thought, but it could be true that you you face hard environmental constraints such such that you need a gradual population decline. Uh, but immediate, yeah. That, 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 yeah, that just seems to be so detached from the thought that you're going to protect the resources by, by an immediate, an immediate and one-time only mass slaughter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 those thoughts seem too detached from me to want to use one of them to impugn the other. So in in the uh, since we've com we've completed twenty two movies, uh, I think one of the more amazing things ever ever achieved in filmmaking. Is there anything that you would like to see in in, in terms of ideas explored in in future movies? Uh, that would because this this is kind of keep going, especially because they can almost print money with this stuff, especially with the, the latest Avengers. Uh, any sort of so themes? So the 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 end of Endgame actually for one of the first times in all twenty two movies really strained my suspension of disbelief with respect to social speculation. I've said you have to not think about it, you have to not think about it, you have to not think about it. But the next phase of Marvel movies happens in a world where half of the people just went through five years of grief, trauma, and 
societal collapse. And the other half of the people just came back five years too young. And I would really like that to get something more than what I anticipate, which is in Spider-Man Far From Home, 30 seconds of hand-waving that says, gee, isn't it funny that all of us best friends from high school all happen to die, so we all happen to still be the same age, so we can go on making a movie as a group. Um, that's not just about societal collapse, though. It's about psychological realism. Uh, other people should still be struggling with grief and trauma. And I don't know how they should do that, because it, it's bad if it swallows the movies up altogether. But I think it's going to be a problem if the end of Endgame just gets portrayed as a happy ending and the status quo anti-restored and doesn't really recur as a topic in the movies from now on. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.